If you would, remain standing and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. And we'll read together in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Please be seated. Last week, we walked through the first few verses of this text. We saw that justification, that's the action of declaring or making one righteous in the sight of the Lord, cannot possibly come through the keeping of the law. Paul wrote that the promise to Abraham and his offspring would come through not the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And why was that? It's because in order that this promise may be guaranteed, it must rest on grace. Abraham was justified by his faith. And that was a faith that God was who he said he is. It was a faith that God's promises are all yes and amen. And we had a reminder that Scripture did not say that Abraham's faith itself was righteousness, but rather that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't Abraham's faith. It was all of God's grace. The promises to Abraham, all of God's grace. Abraham's faith came from all of God's grace. His justification, all of God's grace. We saw that works and religious ceremony or the keeping of the law could never guarantee these promises. Only through God's grace could these promises be guaranteed. So justification is dependent on grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
That means it doesn't depend on us. And this is the way that it's always been from creation through Israel, through the New Testament, today until Christ returns, this was God's plan for salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For grace you have been, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship." created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We didn't come to saving faith through anything that we did. We didn't seek God. We didn't impress him with our good works. We didn't say a special prayer that saved us. That baptism we saw today saved nothing. When we take the Lord's table this morning, that will not save us. Because we were dead in our sin, and God brought us back to life. Today, we'll take a closer look at the faith of Abraham. So let's read those first few verses again. Verses 18 through 21. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he has been told so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver among the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, and that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness." Paul says, in hope against hope. Hope against hope, he should become the father of many nations. So these promises that God gives, I hope y'all will bear with me this morning. We're going to read a lot of Old Testament scripture because I think it's good for us to put these promises in context when we talk about Abraham's faith. So if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with them. So Abram, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. 
at the time of the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So before Abraham was known as Abraham, he was called Abram, which means the father of many. Now, Abram had to find this slightly ironic, that his name was the father of many, because here we find him at 75 years old, no offspring, and God tells him to leave his family, to leave his land, to leave everything that he knew. God promises to make Abraham into a great nation. And he makes promises to an offspring that he doesn't have. And what was Abraham's response? It was faith and obedience. He got up and he went. Turn ahead a little bit to chapter 15 of Genesis. And we see, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God... What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, number the stars if you are able to number them. Then the Lord said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord And he counted it to him as righteousness. So at this point, Abram is probably closer to 85 years old now. Sarah being about 75 years old. The Lord reaffirms his promise, saying that his own son would be his heir. Not only would they have a son, but their offspring would be too many to count. And again, we see Abraham's faith and his obedience. In chapter 16, we see Abraham and Sarah stumble a little. It's not that they didn't believe in the promise of God. It's that they tried to take the promise of God into their own hands. Still believing in God's promise, they attempted to take matters into their own hands by conceiving a son with the servant Hagar. If you turn to Genesis chapter 17, God once again affirms his promise to Abraham, saying, when Abraham... When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you and throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will and I will be their God. And Abraham and God said to Abraham, "As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations." 
If we skip, skip ahead a few verses to verse 15, we see, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking to him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God said to him. So we find Abraham now at 99 years old. God changes his name from Abram, the father of many, to Abraham, the father of multitudes. No wonder Abraham fell on his face and laughed. He's 99 years old. He has one, one child, not from Sarah, but from Hagar. Not the child that God promised, but the child that through his flesh he tried to make into that child. But God calls him the father of multitudes. We find God once again affirming his promise that Sarah would conceive the son of promise. And we know the rest of the story. All of God's promises are kept. Sarah did bear a son, and the nation of Israel sprang forth from him. Canaan was conquered and given over to Israel, and the entire world was blessed through the line of Abraham and the coming of Jesus Christ. We have the benefit of the entirety of God's revelation. Abraham didn't. He only had the promises that God made to him. Abraham lived for about 175 years. So close to 100 years from his calling, Abraham placed his faith not in the promises that God made, but in the God that made the promises. If we turn back to our text in Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 21, four short verses are so important as we talk about Abraham's faith. Paul writes, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. When it came to bearing a child, Abraham and Sarah's bodies were as good as dead. 
There was nothing that Abraham and Sarah could have done in their own power to conceive a child. Paul wrote that in hope, he believed against hope. That's a very complex sentence there. But we have to recognize that there's two different hopes that Paul is talking about here. First, we have the hope that relies on the flesh. And second, we have the hope that relies on the creator of the universe. In the hope that relies on the flesh, Abraham had no hope. Their bodies were as good as dead. But in the hope that relies on God, anything was possible. So Paul is saying here that Abraham put his hope in the promises of God, even though he had no hope in the flesh. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promises of God. Did that mean that Abraham and Sarah never struggled with their faith? Absolutely not. We see on multiple occasions, Abraham laughing at the idea of being 99 and having a child. Abraham telling God, I I don't understand how you're going to do this. We see him consider his own body as it concerns God's promises. But not understanding how God acts, that's not doubting. Abraham and Sarah were not people that wavered between faith and doubt. As you read the story of Abraham in its entirety, go to Genesis, read the entire account of Abraham, you see a faith that grows stronger and stronger with each struggle that Abraham experienced. And Paul says that it grew stronger as Abraham gave glory to God. Abraham could trust in the promises of God, not because he really hoped those promises would come true. He trusted in the promises of God because he knew who God was. He knew who God claims to be. And he knew that God proves himself to be that. Abraham didn't place his faith and trust in God's promises. He placed his trust in God. Abraham had faith that God had both the power and the faithfulness to do what he had promised. He had both the ability to keep his promise and the faithfulness to keep it. Paul sums up this lesson on Abraham in verse 22 through 25 of our text with an application of faith and justification. He says, this, That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This lesson that Paul just went through, saying that Abraham's faith is what justified him. It wasn't his works. It wasn't his circumcision. It wasn't his keeping of the law, but it's faith. That is written for us as well. It's been passed down from generation to generation. God has kept his word together and kept it right. The psalmist wrote, In Psalm 78, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from from old. 
things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children. But to the coming generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the child yet unborn, and arise and tell them to to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Paul would write later in Romans 15, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures that we might have hope, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the same hope that Abraham had. We have the same hope as the recipients of Paul's letter in Rome had. That hope is that righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The key here in verses 24 and 25 is to us who believe, to those who believe. As we saw with Abraham, this isn't just a general belief in facts. The Protestant reformers named three key elements that are to be always to be included in saving faith that separates saving faith from general belief. The first is notitia. Fancy word. Just means that this is the knowledge of basic information. Basic informational foundations of our faith. This is to have knowledge of the facts. We're sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus is the Son of God. He put on flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death, and he was raised from the dead on the third day. And he ascended to the right hand of God. And he did all of this to take on the wrath that we as sinners are well-deserving of. And through that, he imputes his righteousness to believers. Those are the facts of the gospel. So Notitia is just knowing the facts. The second is a census. This is a scent or confidence that we have the notitia correct, that our knowledge is correct. We agree that these are the facts and the facts are true. But having the knowledge of the gospel and even acknowledging the truthfulness of it, that is not saving faith. That is general belief. It's not enough to know the facts and admit that they're true. James wrote, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you, and, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, war, uh, be warm and filled, without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? See also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons do these first two things. They know the facts. They know that they're true. 
So what's missing? What's missing? The word for it is fiducia. That's resting in the information based on a conviction of its truthfulness. This is what the writer of Hebrews means when he says that faith is the assurance, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And here's the great thing. All three of these elements, the facts, they come from God. He's given it to us and his self-revelation and kept it true and tr- kept it true through translation so that we can read it in our own language. That comes from God. Our ability to say that these things are true only by the grace of God. Our ability to place our whole hope and trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, that faith comes from God. Now the world will tell you that this kind of faith is the height of human irrationality. The world will tell you that to believe in God is some type of weakness in intellect. Nowadays, they'll tell you that to believe in God is directly related to racism or social injustice in this world, that somehow it is our belief in God that causes all these problems in the world. They'll tell us that our faith in God can only happen with a denial of all science. To have faith in God is to ignore all the evidence in the world around us. Now, I find this argument hilarious, especially today, considering that the same people that tell us that we are irrational for what we believe are the same people telling you that there's endless numbers of genders or that men can become pregnant. That is irrational. But is it irrational to believe that God is who he says he is in his word? Or is it more irrational to say that there is no God? Watch a sunrise or a sunset and tell me there's not a creator. Look at the complexity of the world. Look at the laws of physics. Look at science. Look at gravity, mathematics. Look at all these things and tell me they happen by accident. Look into your children's eyes and tell me they were not fearfully and wonderfully made. Everywhere you look, there is evidence of a creator. So let's look real quick at the claims of the gospel. And let's decide together, are these claims rational or irrational? If we look out at creation and say there must be a creator it is logical that the creator of that universe has the right to hand down a moral law for his creation. It's a law that's written on our hearts. You can go into the most remote village in the world and they will have some semblance of law there. You go in there and punch an old lady in the face. They're going to know that's wrong. How is that? They weren't taught that. It wasn't brought up in their culture. It's a law that's written on their hearts. If there's a law that's written on our hearts, what happens when we fail to keep it? 
Scripture says that breaking God's law is deserving of death. But in God's love and mercy and grace towards us, he provides a way to be justified, to be made right, to be determined to be innocent before God, even though we're guilty. It's a way to be declared innocent because Jesus fulfilled the law. He took on the fullness of God's wrath on behalf of those who believe. That's rational. It's based on reason. It's based on evidence. But how do we earn this salvation? If it was up to us, we've already seen it can't come through the keeping of the law. It can't come by good works. It can't come by our religious ceremonies. The only way it can come is through faith. So how do we earn it? We don't. We don't earn it. We can't earn it. Faith is all that is required. And the one who promised it is the one who gives us faith. So biblical faith, I will grant you, at times goes beyond reason. It goes beyond our ability to fully understand it. But it's always based on the reasonable. John Stott wrote in his commentary on Romans that faith is believing or trusting in a person. Its reasonableness depends on the reliability of the person being trusted. It is always reasonable to trust the trustworthy. And there's nobody more trustworthy than God. So it's a beautiful thing when we see faith spring up, when we see faith grow in others around us. And I hope that we never, ever forget to give thanks for the one who makes faith possible. So I'll leave you with this today. It's a quote from the great Puritan writer John Flavel on faith. He writes, "'Tis just matter of wonder and astonishment that ever one spark of faith was kindled in such a heart as thine is, a heart which had no predisposition, no inclination in the least to believe. Yea, it was not like clean paper, the heart was not void of any impression of faith, but it was filled with com uh, contrary impressions, so that tis marvelous that ever your heart received the stamp or impression of faith on them. It was wonderful that the fire should fall from heaven and burn upon the altar when Elijah laid the wood in order upon it. But how much more wonderful when he poured so much water upon it that it not only wet the wood but filled the trenches. Just so was the case of thy soul when God came to kindle faith there. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we've seen in your word, salvation comes through faith. And just by the grace of God, Lord, that in order for you to make a promise and guarantee it, it could not possibly be dependent on us. Lord, we're undeserving of that grace, Lord. Yet you so freely give it to your people. 
Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word so that we can that, that we can reason with Scripture, Lord, that we, can, that we can look to Scripture and we can see the claims of who you are and the evidence of that they're true. Lord, for believers, I pray that you would just lay it on our hearts to give thanks daily, to be reminded daily of the great grace in which you love us and the promises that you're conforming us into the image of your Son. Uh, Lord, let us... Let us seek hard after these things, Lord. Let us spend time in your word. Let us treasure these promises, Lord. Lord, if there's unbelievers here today, I pray that you would open their hearts, Lord, that you would show them the reason, show them the reasonableness of the gospel, Lord. Convict them of their sin. Call them to repent and to believe on you, Lord, to place all of their trust and faith and Christ and Christ alone for salvation. I pray as we continue in worship today, Lord, that, that it would be a sweet aroma to you. We ask all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.